Hello, and welcome to the Talented Amateurs Podcast. My name is Joe Randolph, your host, and today we have Tiffany Young, who is Director of Equity and Diversity at Washoe County School District in Reno, Nevada. She is also founder of Tiffany Young Consulting, focused on leading programs and policies addressed through an equitable and culturally responsive lens. Tiffany is also an adjunct professor at the University of Nevada, Reno, and is an advocate for families, community, young women, leadership, and education. She is a public speaker, trainer, workshop facilitator, and community collaborator. So, Tiffany, thank you for joining the podcast and looking forward to the conversation. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me, Joe. Glad you were able to join us. I, I really am looking forward to this conversation. Um, as you know, obviously we've known each other for a few years now since I've been in Reno, but really I've enjoyed watching your work in the community, but also just your your growth as an entrepreneur and a consulting with Tiffany Young and consulting. And obviously on top of some of the work that you're doing with the school district um, has been really inspirational just to see just the impact that you've had in the school district and the community at a, at a whole. So I'm, I'm hoping today we get a chance to bring some of that to light and really looking forward to the audience getting a chance to hear your story as well. Great, thank you. I'm excited for that as well. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's get started. Awesome. So as we get kicked off, maybe just give us an introduction and tell us who is Tiffany Young? Tell us about your background and where you're from. Yeah, um, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, but uh, raised in South Central Los Angeles. I always say the good part of L.A., uh, but I'm also been in Reno for 30 years now. So I am a mother of two amazing kids. My son's birthday is today and the daughter of Norma Robinson and Meryl Berlin Robinson, who was like number nine of 15 kids born in Stuttgart, Arkansas. And so um, I am a person that loves to learn and I really love helping people. So I just have this heart to reach out and connect and build. And uh, I'm a business owner and I love the work that I do. And I'm just in a position in my life now where I'm able to connect what I do professionally, um, what I've grown personally, and just what I value as far as being involved in the community. Right. And obviously you were a, a couple hats um, in your school role with the, with the school and then obviously in your consulting and then as a university professor as well. So you have multiple hats. Maybe yeah. let's talk more first about just your role as director of equity and diversity at the Washoe School District. Tell us more about your role and what you're doing there here in Washoe County. Yeah, I've been in the district now for nine years. And um, it's funny because I never planned to go into education. I was working from home at the time. I was a consultant back then. And there was a racial incident that happened at school with my daughter. And I didn't feel like the school handled it very well. I didn't feel like the district handled it very well. So after filing complaints and and going all mama bear on everybody I could find, I ended up on like a parent advisory committee. And then I ended up doing some other um, work and projects with the school district. And then I had to find a job because, you know, life happens. And I started working for the school district in their family school partnerships department. And so I worked there for about a year and a half, but also just doing diversity work. And I had been doing work around diversity, equity, and inclusion for like 15 years. And then they reformed their equity and diversity department. At the same time, I had gone back to school to get my master's degree. And um, I said, I'm just going to go for it because all they can do is say no, right? So I applied for the job and uh, two rounds of interviews later. And what is your year one plan? I got hired on as the director of equity and diversity. So my position is a unique position. There's a lot of school districts that have equity and diversity people, but they don't have an equity and diversity department. 
So we have a full department and we work to build capacity. We train, we provide tools and resources for teachers and administrators and central office. We look at policies and practices. I mean, we work system-wide. And so we don't do solely conversations about race or solely conversations around policy. We have an umbrella approach and we get the opportunity to, on any given day, work with a group of students, work with teachers, work with principals, but it's always in the manner of building capacity and helping them understand the difference between diversity, equity, inclusion, and cultural competency. Got it. And when you think about just some of the dynamics of equity inclusion within the school system, what are some of the trends that you're seeing and what are some of the things you're working to address systemically that you see in the school districts? Well, there's a lot of trends, obviously, with COVID happening right now, but we have more uh, systems. I wouldn't just say schools that are making like knee jerk reactions. We need a diversity person or we need an equity person. And so I would say that's um, a challenging trend that's happening. But also the other trend is because of the very public and present things that we're seeing around the social injustices. Um, people are now going, wow, there's more inequities than we ever thought before. Or we go from that end of the spectrum to the other side of guilt. Um, I feel so bad because, you know, I didn't know, or I feel so bad because I wasn't aware of these things. And so we're in a place to be able to have some true intentional and authentic conversations. And so being able to get people to look at their core values and beliefs, like how were you raised? Um, what do you know? What have you experienced? And then how does that land in what you do every day? And so that's sometimes a real hard road for people to make those connections and not shut down to be able to lean into like work around equity and diversity and cultural competency and inclusion. And, and when you look at obviously the Reno area, Washoe County, when you look at some of the data, obviously the demographics, um, when people think diversity, when you think about black and brown, obviously the smaller African-American community, but as you think about some of those trends, how do you help uh, drive the awareness around the, the, the different demographics around the schools and how you need to be able to understand the nuance of each? Because every community is different. Every demographic is different. How do you drive and help shape some of that work around those different demographics that exist in the, in the county? Yeah, we use data all the time. Um, we are blessed to have such rich data, but getting people to understand that when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, cultural competency, it's race, it's gender, it's sexual orientation, it's socioeconomic status, it's all of the things, all the levels of ability that people have. And so we have to first like break down terminology. That's like first and foremost for people because they don't understand. They hear the word diversity, like you said, and automatically they think it's a bonus that you get because you're a shade of brown. Um, we talk about cultural competency. We have people that are white that'll say, I'm white, I don't have culture. You know, so we have to do some, some work at the front end to get some understanding around terminology, get some understanding around what it means in practice. And then we can do the capacity building, right? But we can't just go, okay, let's talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they don't know what it is. And we've just done a poor job of interchangeably using the words like diversity and culture, because then all people hear is black and brown or black and white. And then it leaves out people with varying levels of ability, or it leaves out, you know, people's different religious practices. And so 
we have to be intentional to break down the terminology for people. Yeah, that's a great point. I think a lot of times when you when people hear that, they do only think about the racial element, but then you have disability, you have sexual orientation with LGBTQ. And I think it's really important for um, that education and awareness to really be um, brought to light, just to ensuring that one, we can show up better for our diverse audience and the diverse organization and, and, and body that it represents us. But then one of the things, you know, as we think about leaders, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this is with leaders in schools, particularly you're dealing with principals who may each have different sets of demographics, different sets of nuances. What are you doing to foster that with the leaders in terms of how they drive equity in schools? And what are some of the needs you feel like they need in order to be effective in this area? So I've done um, a good job of hiring great people. So I have, a, I have an awesome team um, and we're a small team, but a mighty team. And I've pushed to have a structure where I as the director can coach the supervisors of principals and then my team can work with the principals. And so a lot of what I'm seeing is we've got some great administrators that are like, yeah, I need to like wrap my head around this. We've got some that are saying, I don't want to touch it. Um, we also get some that just say, I don't know what to do, right? There's just the reality of where do we start the conversation? How do we engage in this? Um, my demographics don't necessarily fall in a certain place. And so for us, working with leaders um, is always in a coaching capacity. So if you're a principal or an area superintendent, that's coaching work. When we're working with teachers and other um, administrators or positions across the district, that's gonna be more one-on-one -on -one practice and actual implementation and training. And so a lot of the times we have to be the ear, right? Because people need to be able to say where they are before I can move them across the continuum. And sometimes, you know, there's um, hammer work that's done with equity, diversity, and cultural competency. People want to walk in and put the hammer down and point fingers at people, but they're not going to hear that. So I have to have difficult conversations. I have honest conversations. I don't sugarcoat it, but I also have to listen. So what's going on at your school? What are you struggling with? Um, how do you uh, function around these words and terminology? And that's more telling for me when they struggle to say a word like black or when they're not really sure how to connect the dots on the data, then I'm going, okay. So then I can come back and say, this is what I heard. Here's some gaps that I, that I noticed that you may have some challenges with because as a leader, if you're struggling in this conversation, you can't tell me that you're being able to coach and roll this out across your school. So um, people are open to that kind of process. And I think it's helpful on both sides so they don't feel like we're punitive when we're coming in and talking to them. Right. And you mentioned the the hiring, and, and I think that's key. When you think about that, that push for talent and being able to bring talent into the district, what do you see, what do you see as some of the unique challenges? Because I know just in whole, uh, when Reno, the community and the city at large, and how it's continuously trying to push to bring in talent from other areas, diversity. What do you see as some of the unique opportunities in being able to attract talent to the district one? Because yeah. um, Reno is a very unique space. You know, it's not Las Vegas. It's not the Bay Area. What do you see as some of those challenges in, in recruiting talent, particularly diverse talent, that will allow you to have the, the different diversity of thought in the school systems as well? 
You know, I've been having this conversation for a couple of years and I'll be honest, um, I've, ch- I've, I've changed my kind of outlook on it. Now, initially I was like, they need to do better. They just need to recruit more. And the more I got involved in the system, even as teaching at UNR, um, there's a couple of things that happen. So it depends on what position we're talking about. We talk about hiring a diverse workforce. So if we're talking about teachers, that's not just a school district issue. That's a pipeline conversation, right? Because we hire who goes into higher ed to become teachers. And so if we can diversify the pool that goes into higher ed, then we can diversify the hiring pool. That's, that's, that's one of the challenges. The other challenge begins to be geographic location, right? So if we're trying to recruit someone out of state, getting them to understand that Reno is not Las Vegas, um, that Reno, it snows, that we're 45 minutes away from. So there's that conversation. The other conversation is we should never have a hiring and recruitment conversation without having a retention and promotion conversation. So what happens is we have organizations, school districts, companies spend a lot of time talking about hiring a diverse workforce, but they haven't examined the fact that they haven't promoted a person of color or a woman or a person with varying uh, um, abilities in a while, or they haven't, you know, created a mechanism for people to grow their skills. Some people have been hired and stagnant and stuck in position. So it's, I think it's, it's a broader conversation that I've even learned than I thought it was when I first started. Because when I first started, I was like, just hire more diverse people. And then, you know, as you look into the intricacies of the system, because a school district is not just teachers, you know, somebody has to run the business, somebody has to run the mailroom, someone has to, you know, and so what you'll find is at the ground level, you know, there's more racial, ethnic, gender, sexual orientation, and socioeconomic status of diversity at the bottom level. But as you know, I'm sure, Joe, is when you funnel approach the work, right, the more, the closer you get up to the top, the less diverse it becomes. Absolutely. And when you when you look at some of the data around the trends of when you mentioned retention, I think that's the key, because you actually probably spend more money going out and recruiting and and bringing new people versus being able to promote, provide equitable bonuses and compensation for people that you have. It's probably a lot cheaper. When you look at some of the data, where are some of these these teachers that are leaving or some of these these employees that are leaving the district? Where are they going? Because I think that may be also an opportunity to see what is attracting them outside of the district. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say right now, it's hard to tell if you think about where they're going now compared to a year ago, right? Because with COVID and the changes, people are leaving for a plethora of reasons, whether they don't feel safe or they wanna work from home or you know they've gone to charter schools. It's, it's a, a plethora of reasons. And a year ago, um, probably some similarities, but more now so because of health, physical, mental health. So um, I wouldn't be able to give you like a clear kind of why I think they're leaving. I think there's an umbrella of reasons. Um, and I don't, I don't envy the role of a superintendent, right? Especially now, not at all, not at all. And you mentioned COVID uh, uh, earlier and, you, and, and talking about what are some of the, the new trends or things that you now have to think about in current state and then also when we get back into being in class facilitation, or have you identified any new trends or any new types of platforms and programs that you need to be paying attention to, particularly when you're in a virtual space where sometimes that DNI component can get a little tricky because I can't pick up on physical and, and nonverbal cues. I can't 
um, I, I can't see and have that interpersonal connection where sometimes that's where we get past our path to competency. What are you seeing as some of the things you'll have to maybe plan for or adjust for with COVID that maybe provided some new opportunities for you guys to be a little bit more effective also? Yeah, for me as a, as a director in this work around equity and diversity, my, my strength is in the facilitation of the tools, right? That is, that is what my strengths lie um, and why I rolled into my consulting business. But I coach my team on facilitating the information. So when we first shut down, we immediately flipped um, our professional learning that we provide online. So we started working right away using Zoom, using Teams, using you know other platforms, how to pull people in and engage people. And so we quickly shifted then. So one of the trends that I'm seeing is one, trying to provide um, training online in the midst of Zoom and team fatigue, right? And so being able to have interactive ways of doing things, whether it's coaching people on aspects of a system that they've never even seen, so that you putting people in rooms or they're annotating or you know using other um, platforms where they can text things live and polling. So we've been able to incorporate those things where we've had people say at the end of our training, I was dreading being on because our training now is four hours. Um, four days. So it's 16 hours, but they were like, I was dreading being on Zoom for four hours, but you made it interactive. Um, you provided the tools and we were able to talk with other people. And so we've been getting um, pretty decent feedback from the way that we've flipped it, but people are um, shy, um, frustrated, confused, but we also had to step back because we made some assumptions that we're so well into now doing things um, virtually that we assume that people get it, right? So then you jump into a session or like, okay, go to your annotate. And then you've got three people going, what is that? So then we've even had to pull back and go, let's assess what knowledge is in the room on screen before we roll into all of the training. So we've had to, we made several adjustments. And you mentioned as well, obviously when, when you get into the situation now with COVID, particularly in the school district, you know, obviously you also identify gaps, particularly in the student experience. And to be honest, the parent experience as well. Obviously, me being in technology, I pay attention to the digital divide and how much this has created that much more awareness around how that plays out, particularly in black and brown communities, but then also in poor economically advantaged communities where they may not have you know, access to, to broadband. Sometimes there's also a gap or a uh, broadband desert where some areas just don't have it. And it's nothing um, that they can do about it other than working with the cities and making sure that there's opportunities there. But how do we ensure that some of the gaps that we've exposed or have been exposed, how do we fix those, particularly for the student experience, but also for the parents? Um, as, as I was saying, like the district is a large place, right? So first you've got to, acknowledge the gaps are there, step one, mm -hmm. right? And then after you've assessed kind of the environment, then you build systems. So to your point, you know, we are bordered by two tribal entities. We have two reservations that border, you know, the school district, Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe, Reno Sparks Indian Colony. Um, we also know that uh, Reno Sparks Indian Colony out in the Hungry Valley area just recently got broadband in the last couple of years. And as you said, you know, broadband doesn't confirm access. And so what we're seeing is, while there um, are tablets and laptops and things being put in place, 
you know more than anyone else. Just because you have a tablet doesn't mean you know how to use a tablet. And so our students are trying to navigate, our families are trying to navigate, our teachers are trying to navigate, um, you know, and it's easy to be skeptical. I get skeptical um, myself. My, I have a grandson who is in uh, first grade and I'm looking at all the things he has to do to do online school and, and that's first grade. So it is a challenge with the number of systems being able to capture, you know, access, depending on if you're elementary, middle, or high school, um, teachers being able to have the skills to provide what students need, um, internet access, if there's more than one kid in the home and, and family member or babysitter, whoever is at home and everybody's on a laptop, you know, it just becomes spotty. And so it, there are or plethora of kind of gaps and inequities that need to be addressed. But step one to that work is really acknowledging that the inequities are there and then try to build resources because it can't be a one size fit all. That's an equal approach. An equitable approach is to figure out individually what our students and our families need. Now, as you think about how COVID has just kind of disrupted the environment education, do you see there's an opportunity where now we can maybe have different tailored approaches to how we educate and teach students. Some teach, some students' learning styles are different. Some are more are better in classrooms where others are better suited for uh, online. Mm -hmm. Is there an opportunity where we can look at different and new ways to be innovative around meeting the different learning needs of students? And, and I don't know if there's a way to under, you know compare some of the data as we go through, because I'm assuming there should be a lot of data that we could study based on how the students progress through this this period and in terms of their grades, their performance, anything that you see as opportunities there as we think about the learning experience and meeting the different unique needs of learning styles? Um, as, as frustrating and as awful as COVID has been and the toll that it's taking, like every day is an opportunity at this point, right? Because we have so many resources out there and so many opportunities to listen. That's one of the things we really encourage. And um, we, we had a student town hall meeting and just asking the students, what do they need? What are they struggling with? Asking the family members. Every day is an opportunity to figure out which, which platform works. But you know, there's, it's a system as well. So while 50 teachers may say this platform over here works, the IT department in your district may say, this is the only platform we have, right? So those are things that um, I don't think people really realize where there's like, this is a great innovative idea. Well, the district can't just go, okay, tomorrow we're gonna switch to this. They've got to research and look at the data and then they've got to make a collective approach and they've got to look at budget and funding. You know, it's a lot bigger. It still not doesn't um, lessen the frustration of why can't we just switch? But there's the reality of that. So I think every day at this point is an opportunity to bring in students' lived experience, um, get them, you know, what are projects they can do out in their communities or even in their home. You know, they can't go many places, but science can be done in the kitchen, you know, and recorded opposed to just sitting um, and watching. And so how do we ensure that we have culturally responsive practices happening in the midst of COVID technology and learning? And there are just so many ways to do it. And now is the opportune time to figure it out. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of great work that you, you that's ahead of you and that you're doing now in the school district. And so looking forward to just the, the continued innovation and expansion of some of those practices. And so you're doing diversity and equity in the school district, but then you also have Tiffany Young Consulting. 
Tell us more about what you're doing there and, and, and just tell us more about your company. Yeah. So as I said earlier, I was a consultant for seven years uh, before I went to work for the district. And so I kind of canceled my consulting business and then I relaunched it in 2018. And so my consulting is always all around uh, professional learning. So the old professional development, but professional learning in the sense of the work of cultural competency is capacity building. Uh, I can come in and organizations hire me to build capacity and train on implicit bias, um, having courageous conversations about race, looking at systemic processes that they have internally, um, looking at tools and resources to kind of help shift where they are in their mindset. Um, Also, I have some thought partnership opportunities where people can hire me, maybe on a retainer basis. And they're like, I just want to talk through some things. You know, we're going to work on this project because not everyone wants the training. And so um, I've been able to work with the Reno Police Department. I'm doing some work with company in Chicago and McGraw-Hill. I've worked with a couple of marketing companies here lately, Um, some of our private schools, as well as the University of Nevada, Reno. I've just finished a series with the chamber. And so um, being able to do the work of equity, diversity, and cultural competency is about bringing awareness, uh, providing tools, and then building capacity for people. Awesome. And you, and you talk about you, how do you increase cultural competency and, but with a culturally diverse approach, what does this mean when you think about driving it with the, with the awareness within the companies or these organizations that you're working with? Cultural competency is an inside out approach. It's a lot different. So, you know, old school kind of diversity training was um, looking out at other people. This group does this, this group does this, this is what you need to know. And for me, in my opinion, the cultural competency work changes when it becomes an inside out approach. I've got to do the work in here before I start to understand what's happening outside and around me. So when I'm talking to companies, um, because right now, right? So after George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, you know, so on and so forth, everyone started making diversity mission statements, right? Every commercial you see, um, things you hear on the radio. And so my question to organizations is, have you actually internalized that practice? So you've written a mission statement, but have you looked at who's on your board? Have you looked at who you've hired recently? Have you checked to see if you have any potential barriers? What is your marketing and outreach plans look like? Are they just one representative group? Have you had intentional conversation about anybody who maybe came in that was different from the majority who didn't feel safe or comfortable and who left? So we've got to do some internal organizational work and we've got to do some internal individual work. And so what are your core values and beliefs around race and gender and socioeconomic status? Um, How do you define professionalism um, with a culturally responsive lens? Do you have an expectation that a person can come in, be their true authentic self, me as a black woman intentionally and unapologetic and still work there, even though I don't fit the parameters of your organization. So having those kinds of conversations with them and then As you do that, you start to look at how do we build the skill, the will and ability to change because cultural competency work means there's going to have to be a change, right? There, what's the point of spending four hours with me and go back to doing what you've been doing before. But businesses then have to say, what can I potentially lose by doing this, right? Am I gonna lose partners or funders? Am I gonna lose employees or staff when we really start to institutionalize the shift of cultural competency. 
And you talk about shift happens, right? I know that's your your theme when yes. in looking at some of your work. How do you know that shift happens? And obviously, everybody won't get 100% there. That path to competency is, of a, is an evolving process. But how do you know when that shift happens? Yeah, sometimes it shows up on a pre and post survey. So I'll do, you know, pre-assessment with the group that I'm training, then everybody's at all fives, right? And then you do the post-assessment or like, oh, I'm actually a one. So that's growth, right? So then I see they've shown some growth there. Sometimes it happens a month later or a year later and they call and you go, you know what? I was in a meeting and what you said like really clicked. So there's a range of ways that the shift happens. But I let people know that if you're going to be intentional about this work, that shift has to happen, right? Um, and I say, you know, that, that F is capitalized, that F is fabulous, but we really have to understand that you cannot have the outcomes that you want if you continue to have the people that are the same in place. And so having a diverse board, having a diverse staff, and not just race and ethnicity, diverse skill level and knowledge, if you have an expectation that you only place value on people with letters behind their names and we don't value people that don't have them, then we're missing some great opportunities to bring people into our nest. And so really that shift happens is a shift in perspective, a shift in practice, um, a shift in mission, a shift in outcomes. And so that's really what I push for when I'm working uh, with an organization. And when you think about the work that you're doing within these companies, and obviously with a lot of the things that have happened throughout this year, um, Mr. Floyd, Rihanna Taylor, and as this push for more diversity and inclusion has occurred, you're starting to see companies think about their diversity inclusion programs. What do you see as the role of DNI in education and business as we move forward? I think the role is the same. The role, in my opinion, should always be to build capacity whether you're in education or whether you're in an organization. Because right now, like if you have a quarter's worth of equity, diversity and um, cultural competency, knowledge and experience, you can get a job, right? Um, because everybody wants it. And there are some people that are doing amazing things out there. There are also some people that are not, right? And let's be honest about it. And I'll let an organization know, I just recently put a proposal out and they're like, I'm not really sure. And I said, that's totally okay. You need to find what fits for you. Because if my approach is not what you want, it's gonna harm your business, but, you know, then grow your business. And so what I'm seeing is the role should always be capacity building. There are some that need you to point a finger and like put the hammer down, but that's not my role. My role is to help you see what your practice is doing and then help you build a better way of doing it. So I always look at it as my role, whether it's in education, whether it's in my consulting business, whether I'm teaching at the university or just in the community is always about capacity building. With your clients, what, what are some of the reactions you get from them? Because when you come, when you come in, you're basically taking the blinders off and you pull in the covers back and you're exposing them. How do they respond to that? What are, what are some of the things that you observe and witness when you start to have these conversations? And then how do they adjust and ensure that they're covering and making sure that they are adjusting as well? I've seen anger. Um, I've seen tears. Um, I've seen the realm of white fragility and white guilt that shows up. I've seen confusion, <laughs> I've seen people shut down, but I've also seen growth. I've seen um, some awareness. I've seen some 
even some kind of that sigh of like, okay, finally, you know, you, there's always a couple of people that are like on the screen or they'll send me an email or put something in the chat. Like, finally, we're getting to it. You know, finally, we're not just like skipping over some topics. And so I've seen the range of things and it's, it's always incumbent upon me to not take like, especially when someone's crying or they get into that space of kind of fragility or guilt to go good. You know, that's not what I do. I say, okay, stay in that. Now let's figure out where it's coming from. Right. And why are you having the response you have? And now let's talk about how we move because typically, you know, you can see someone crying or, you know, you have the, yep, that that's exactly what's happening. And then you move on. But I, you know, I pause for a moment. I've even, I have to, you know, look at the protocols that I use. If there are as a diverse group around race or gender or sexual orientation and a particular topic comes up, you can tell the people who are more passionate because they speak up. So I may have to even pause people and say, can I have some of my white colleagues or can I have some of my straight colleagues or can I have some of my, you know, whoever's on the screen come into the conversation because I notice that you're sitting in silence. So you even have to have these protocols to pull people into a space because they don't feel like they have agency on a topic because it doesn't necessarily relate to them. So you have to be able to guide through those things and talk people through that as well. How do you use allies in these scenarios? Because sometimes we need those allies to help push the work forward and to help complement the, the learnings because sometimes that helps bridge some of the gaps. How do you, how do you use allies and what's important um, Port, the, the important role of allies in this space. And a lot of people may not understand what allies is. So maybe you can maybe educate us on what, the, what an ally means in diversity. Well, for me, and this is my personal opinion, is that I don't believe that anyone can declare themselves an ally. Um, I think that an allyship is given to you. And so when we talk about an ally, you know, someone that comes alongside of someone who advocates for someone who kind of supports um, who you are and what you're doing in your mission. And we hear that conversation a lot about allyship or you have people say, I'm an ally for the LGBTQIA community or I'm an ally for Black Lives Matter. And then I say, are you actually engaged in that community? Do you know people in that community? Are you talking to them? Um, are you just practicing some social voyeurism? Um, when you say allyship, did you declare yourself an ally or did I deem you my ally? And what we have to also remember is that there's ranges to allyship. There are some people that become so enthralled in being an ally that they have now taken over the voice of the people they're supposed to be allies to. So now they've spoken up so much and the last time they've even met with, engaged or had a relationship with the community they're supposed to be allies for has been decades. And so that allyship conversation for me, when someone says, Tiffany, I'm your ally and I'm saying, well, I don't even know you. So how are you my ally? Tell me what that means and I'll let you know if, I, if you can be my ally. And so um, it's just a sticky kind of conversation. So when I hear the word allyship, and this is just for me personally, it causes me a bit of concern and I have some pause about it because I need to unpack that before I can say yes this person is an ally for me in that role and space that I do. Why is that an important distinction though? I, I think you're the first person I've ever heard say that you can't deem yourself an ally. You have to be provided that, that title. Why is that important for people to understand? Cause I, 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 what I hear is it's your deeds and not your words is what I'm paying attention to. 
So tell us that the, why that that distinction is important. You self-phenomenating yourself as an ally versus the group saying that you are actual ally. It's important because we have to remember that, like what you do in your presence is important, and what you say and what you stand for is key. So I can say that I want to advocate for young women of color. So that means that when job opportunities come up or um, training things need to happen, or if I have skills or tools or resources for young women, I can help them get to where they need to go. I can talk to other people and say, you know, have you hired any young women? That's advocacy work. When I say that I'm an ally, an ally for young women of color, that means I'm sitting with them. I'm having lunch or talking about their experiences. I'm listening to what their needs are. And then I'm asking them, what can I do, right? That's a big difference. I am asking people, what can I do? And then that is where I can get my permission to become an ally. If I'm just going out on my own accord and claiming allyship and I'm saying and I'm doing things, but I haven't even asked the community um, what they need, what's going on. Um, and typically, um, what can I do in my own space and privilege? What can I do with the power that I do hold? to advocate for you. That's the difference in that allyship for me. Now, thank you for that distinction. And I think that's important for people to understand because if you really wanna ensure that you're having impact and really supporting these groups, ask what they need, do the work, show up and really show that you are committed to the work you have buy-in and it's attached to it. So I think that's great. And when we think about from a leadership perspective, what do you think is important for leaders and what they could do more to ensure that they are building a workforce that is diverse, but also in, in, in creating a, an environment where they're fostering inclusion as well? I think leaders of businesses and organizations need to be vulnerable because um, that means you know, you're letting somebody into your house that doesn't live there, who's going to be looking in your cabinets and checking your kitchen, you know, somebody's going to be coming in. And so when I talk to people, because right now, you know, I get referrals, which I'm so appreciative of, and I get conversation and people are like, we want training. And so I say, okay, so I need to schedule some time to talk to you. And we sit and talk, you know, I say to them, okay, you, this is a, this is a private conversation what's going on in your organization? What are you struggling with? Tell me what you see, tell me what you want to happen, right? And then after that, you know, then the floodgates get open. And so then they say all these things and I say, okay, well then that's gonna be this amount or it's going to take these many hours. And they're like, well, I'm not sure. I'm saying, okay, then what do you wanna start with, right? But we've gotta be vulnerable enough. I don't take, I have some tools that I use throughout all of the trainings, but I can't have the same exact conversation with the marketing company that I have with the mining company, right? So when I did the panel for the Nevada Mining Association, just really, we ended up having conversations about the one size fits all uniform that they give. That's not very equitable if it's a woman that's at a different stature, but then they're talking about how do we get more women into mining? Well, that's a K-12 conversation because are we pushing science on women and STEM you know, work for young girls it's all becomes a pipeline process. So um, I think the leader has to be vulnerable with the consultant enough to say what their fears are, what they want, what they see that's happening to let someone in to do the capacity building work for them. Why is vulnerability so hard for people when people think about being vulnerable, whether it's relationships, whether it's how we show up at work and how do we engage? Why is that so hard 
for people when they, when you ask them to be vulnerable? It's part of um, fear of letting go of something, right? Um, I take this back to wearing my mother hat and um, one of the book, I read a book so long ago when my daughter was first born, when I was potty training her and they were talking about uh, part of potty training, um, whether it's the one or the two, right? Um, the fear for babies is it feels like they're losing something. Like they're like, it's, they have, don't know how to let go of it. And if you think about that from an infant who's being potty trained, uh, imagine a leader in a business or an organization who holds the powers and control of something. And for me to be vulnerable, that means I'm going to have to let go, right, of some power. That means I'm going to have to release whatever wall I have up or whatever, you know, space that I put up for protection so that I can grow. And so vulnerability for people means it's, it's scary because that means I have to let, I've got to relinquish this hole that I have that keeps me safe and secure, that keeps me protected, that keeps me in a position of power. And knowing that I need to be the consultant that you can trust to be vulnerable, that I'm going to build from that and not take advantage of what you've shown me or shared share with me. Thank you. What has Tiffany Young learned about herself in this journey as a uh, founder, entrepreneur, and doing this work in diversity? What are some of the things that you've learned about yourself along this journey? I've learned that um, I love being a business owner. I love consulting. Um, I love public speaking. I love the freedom of being able to do that. But I've also learned that people want to grow, right? Um, People want to grow. They just don't know what to do with it. I used to be very skeptical thinking people didn't want to grow. They just want to keep things the same way they are. They don't want to change anything. And so I've learned that. I've also learned about me that um, I I live a very structured life when it comes to business. And so um, sometimes I have to give myself permission to not be doing something all the time for the business because it makes it an unhealthy kind of balance for me. (laughs) So, um, but I definitely love the fact that my business owner, um, I've learned that you don't only need a CPA, but you need a financial advisor as well. And liability insurance is important. (laughs) So I've learned those things. The journey of entrepreneurship is always an evolution. It's continuous learning. And it's always something that you have to always pay attention to. Awesome. Mm -hmm. As we move into next year, and yes. obviously we have hopefully have big things in store. We can go outside again, which would be great. Um, we can travel, get on planes, and and but what for Tiffany Young and consulting? What are some of the big bets you have lined up for next year? Projects, initiatives that you are getting prepared for. So I have been able to um, do some interesting things the last couple of months uh, with a yoga group uh, and a ski resort, working on some things, um, and then some traditional companies. And so for next year, I'd love to be able to, my goal is to lock in at least a solid contract per month for next year, one that you know brings in a sizable amount of money to have a solid contract for each month of the year next year to be able to fully live in this work of consulting for myself. And so um, that's kind of my goal. I'm part of, of several diversity, equity, inclusion networks nationally. And so 
There's a lot of proposals that are coming in. I think because this new administration, um, there have been more and more proposals coming in. You, you will notice if you're in this work of diversity, equity, inclusion, there was a lot of work coming and then it stopped because of the executive order that had come out of the White House. So people had stopped sitting out proposals. And I, you can see that now that things are moving and changing, more organizations are now soliciting their, their proposals again and looking for people to come in and do work for them. Awesome. And anything globally that you're looking to do or have you started to think about doing some global yeah, work? Yeah, so I, I am part of the uh, Fulbright International Consultancy. And so um, they put all contracts on hold, obviously um, with COVID and everything. And so I'm hoping to pick up a couple of international contracts. It's a two-year consultancy that you can be in. And so they extended it for a year because of COVID. Um, I also still work with my group in Africa, She Entrepreneur in, Z in Zambia. And so I do some mentoring for um, Enota and some of the other groups where they're working on several projects. So we check in once a week and I'm hoping to take a group of women to Zambia to do some kind of professional role matching. So talking about that and um, just hoping to be able to consult across the country and internationally and just build the practice. I'm doing work with the uh, Northern Nevada International Center and doing some uh, projects for them around cross-cultural communication. So I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. I'll let you know when I figure it out. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, we, we would definitely be paying attention to, to that, to those, to that growth and, and that, and that, the moves that you're making. Um, as we start to close out, I'd like to leave the audience with three things before we go. If they don't take anything from this episode, what are three things you would want to leave them with before we wrap up today? Uh, I would say pray. Um, I prayed a lot and then I stopped praying. And I prayed again and um, just really pray for the vision that you want for yourself or your business uh, plan and replan. And so don't think just because you wrote down the plan that that's the final plan, you'll have to retune it and refine it and then prepare. So that means you got to do research and you got to read and build and build your own kind of toolkit before you can build that for others. But pray, plan and prepare and stay on it and review it and reevaluate it as much as you can. Great. And before we wrap up, tell us how we can find you. Give us your social medias, your website, so we can get in touch with you, refer clients to you as you're doing some of this great work around cross-cultural competency. Tell us how to find you. Yeah. So my Facebook is just Tiffany Robinson Young. You can look me up on Facebook. Uh, my Twitter is at TiffYoung4. And then if you want to find me on LinkedIn, you can pull up Tiffany Young or Tiffany Young Consulting and I'll come up on LinkedIn and I'd be excited and honored to work with as many people as possible. Very good. So as we wrap up, Tiffany, I want to first just thank you for joining us today, just sharing, sharing a little bit more about who you are, your background, and some of the great work that you're doing in diversity and inclusion, and particularly the impact that you're having across these companies, the education, but then also the community at large. So I want to thank you for joining us today and just sharing your wisdom. Thank you, Joe, for having me. I just appreciate the fact that you're doing the podcast. I'm impressed. Um, but I just enjoyed being able to have this conversation, talk about the work and just talk to you, my friend. 
Very good. And as we wrap up for, for my audience, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do need someone to come in and do diversity and build that cross-cultural competency within your organization, whether it's companies, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's, you know, just your social group, or maybe just you personally, feel free to reach out to Tiffany. She's doing some great work. So I hope you enjoy the episode. We'll make sure that you get Tiffany's information. And with that, we'll wrap up. And Tiffany, thank you for joining. Thank you.